a Pulp MX Network production. Welcome to the Fly Racing Steve Mathis Show presented by Maxis Tires and Alpine Stars Protects on RacerXOnline.com. With your continued support of our sponsors, we have surpassed 1,000 podcasts delivered with over 7 million downloads. Click that Amazon banner on Pulp MX to help us out and donate via Patreon if it suits you. And as always, enrich your moto lifestyle by working with the sponsors who support us. The original Moto Podcast, featuring legends of the past, stars of today, season previews and race reviews, introspection, opinion, facts, and laughs. Here's your host, Steve Mathis. Welcome, everybody, to the Fly Racing Racer X Podcast with Randy Lawrence, one of the most successful mechanics of all time, and absolutely a guy that had a lot of fun in his life working for uh, different riders from Doug Dubok to Jeremy McGrath, as well as racing professional downhill mountain bikes. He was a trainer for uh, RV, for RV's formative years, Nick Way. Guy's done a lot of things, man, and we really appreciate it. So thanks to Fly Racing for making this podcast happen. Please check them out on the web. They've got a lot of cool stuff. they got watercraft stuff as well and mountain bike stuff. I've been taking full advantage of their mountain bike line of line of products, including their shoes and helmets and gloves. I like the media glove is what I use. You can still use your phone when you have your glove on, uh, but yet it's still, and it doesn't give you a ton of uh, padding. I like the gloves to be super thin. So the media line of gloves is perfect for mountain biking for me and absolutely love it. Formula helmet out now, of course, uh, developed by uh, the guys at Fly Racing over a number of years, and they've got a, I don't know, $1 million or something sunk into this helmet. And uh, look at the testing they've got on their website. And uh, you can see how it performs in high-speed crashes and low-speed crashes. And 2020, fly out now. I'm not sure when you're going to hear this. Probably before it comes out. But, yeah, 2020 stuff is looking really good for the folks at Fly Racing. Thank you, Alpine Stars. Whether it's the A1 chest protector, whether it's the A4 chest protector, uh, Alpine Stars has you covered. Tech 10, the most advanced booted motocross today. Tech 7s. I love the Tech 7s. And, of course, the gear that you see out there with Tomac and Barsha and Anderson and and a few other guys. So thank you, Alpine Stars, for coming on board. And Maxxis Tires, MXST, developed by the king, Jeremy McGrath. This is Maxxis's answer for a high-end tire. Uh, if you've skipped over them before and not looked at them, uh, please check out Maxxis.com. they got an IT coming out soon as well. So thank you, Maxxis Tires. Thank you, uh, Alpine Stars. Thanks, Fly Racing, for making this podcast with Randy Lawrence happen. All right, enough talk of me. Let's get right into Randy and everything that he's been up to now, everything he did in the past, and, uh, yeah, bench race a little bit. And now, as I said, on the Fly Racing Racer X podcast, it is a trainer, mechanic, downhill mountain bike racer, and probably some stuff I left out. It's Randy Lawrence. What's up, RL? How are you? I'm good. Um, actually, just leaving to drive to a skate park, taking my son to practice. Oh, nice. Nice. Uh, <laughs> I didn't know you like actually have a scheduled practice for skate parking. Skate park well, stuff. He has a contest on Saturday, so we're going to go down and get some lines down and and uh, make sure he's ready to go for Saturday. Oh, that's sweet. Good to hear. Um, and then we leave next week for Belgium for the World Championships. Really? Max Racing. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's cool. That's so, awesome. Busy. Yeah, you're very busy. Um, obviously, we haven't seen you around the pro races too much, uh, not like we're used to anyways, but uh, you're still training some kids, still working with some people. Uh, who are those guys that you're, that you're working with? <clears throat> yeah, the last couple of years I've kind of shifted gears a little bit. 
been uh, been working with more amateur riders. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually I have like, you know, six to eight amateur riders. Some of them are like just off the bike training. Some of them might just do track days. Some of them, you know, kind of come and they're full on and, and uh, they want everything, you know, kind of like I was doing with my pro guys back in the day. So, yep. um, the one kid that, uh, that I do have now that he's been with me full force for two years is Derek Drake, who's on the KTM Red Bull team. And uh, this is his rookie season in the, in the pro stuff. So yeah, I've been around a little bit more this summer. Mm-hmm. Um, is, and that you said it's a little bit of a step back. What, what was it travel? Was it just the, the pro scene? Um, what made you do it? I don't even know if it was a step back. Um, just a, like a different direction for training. Mm-hmm. Uh, like after like 11, 12, 13, you know, things were, a little, they changed a little bit. I mean, the industry's changed and it's evolved from, you know, obviously when I started with it as a mechanic, but yep. even, even as a trainer and, uh, and uh, so I just started doing some more amateur kids and, and uh, kind of bringing some of my experiences from pro stuff to that. And mm-hmm. I've actually learned a lot from working on the amateur side with, you know, you're dealing more with the families and, and uh, with the pro guys, you're usually, you know, taken care of by the rider and, and you're kind of, uh, kind of like more hands-on like every single day, you know, every day at the track, every race, you like, it's maybe a little bit more daily because you're, you're trying to just find those little things that are going to be better. But on the amateur side, you're like, you know, picking your track days and then, you know, kind of guiding them through their mm-hmm. training and, and helping them understand that it needs to become a lifestyle and not just, you know, exercise when you want and you know, <laughs> go for a run here and there and, oh, I want to mount bike today or I don't, or just trying to get, you know, some of those amateur side kids to understand that it is a, it's a consistency to build that development with just effort every day, you know, whatever the case is. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Um, even at the pro level, you don't really realize, like, and, and you know, you worked with Ryan Villapoto when he was winning, and, and, and that was, a, you know, more modern guy than, say, Jeremy or whatever. These guys, and I've talked to some guys that, that rode at these facilities, and they thought they trained hard, and they thought they did all the stuff, right stuff, and then a guy like Justin Brayton will show up, and they'll be like, oh, Wait, I'm really not working that hard. Like, I don't know if people have an idea of, of how much all in you got to be. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it's it's definitely a big workload. And, and if you take a look at the the very high end of it, you can look at like Alden Baker's, you know, program in his situation with all the KTM guys and and everything that he does. And the, and those are developed championship year after year pros that have been doing it really their whole life. And uh, so their workload is consistent. It's very heavy. The travel's ridiculous. It, I mean, it's just like you could not take an amateur and have them do, you know, sixty percent of that. They would just they would quit. So, where I felt I've been been good with the, on the amateur side is knowing what it takes to be at that level, mm-hmm. and then seeing where these kids are at and talking to the parents and being like, "Look, we're not going to be there tomorrow, but that's the goal." And we have to manage our days, our weeks, our months to get to that point so that we're ready when they do turn the pro. Mm-hmm. So, and, and even at that, like I've been with Derek two years, mm-hmm. and he won everything over writers last year. He won three stones. He won, I mean, he, he's just been at the head of the class for the last couple of years from the B class into the A. Now going into pro, he has really good speed, he has really good fitness, and he's struggling. Yeah, and yeah, yes. We're we're really turning over all the rocks of, of what are we missing, what's going on, 
and, it, and it's kind of boiling down to he's not at the amateur nationals with all of his friends. Um, the the families aren't there that he's used to hanging out with and riding with, and, and uh, he's flying in and out each week. He never can unpack his bag. He shows up to a semi. He has pressure on him. The results haven't been there, so then now there's more pressure, mm-hmm. and he, he feels like he's kind of, it's kind of closing in on him. So now we got we have a weekend off, so we're really trying to take a breather and take a break and and just kind of get him back to normal normal Derek. Yep. So that when he goes back to Millville, he can start showing up again and and kind of understand that grind that yeah. the first seven races have been to him. Yeah, it's a job, everyone. <laughs> it's a really hard job. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It really is. And and uh, they go from amateurs where they where they do really really well to now it's like. It's it's for real. I mean, they're they're making money when they're doing well, and, and they're making good money, and and it's not a joke anymore. There's no time to no no time to slack. I mean, you get there, you have two free laps, and then you got to be fast as anybody in the world. Yeah, or you're not going to do well. Yeah, you know, it's just it's a lot. So yeah, I mean, look at Anderson. He got sent home at one point in his rookie year. It just was piling up. Exactly. And Bobby yeah, Hewitt and said, "Hey, take a couple weekends off." You know. And what's great is is. I was with him, you know, through those years up until he started, you know, getting on the podium and even winning supercrosses. So I saw that process mm-hmm. and the challenges that he faced. And I'm starting to see a little bit of that just showing up to the race struggle. Because Jason's second year, he had fitness. Like, things were good for him. Yep. But he'd show up for the race and still pull off because he wasn't doing mentally what he felt he should be and couldn't really deal with it. So it took a long time for him to get it. There's very, very few rookies that just get it right away and just go. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the number 207 did, and we'll get to that in a second. But, yeah. Um, yeah, and for you, RL, less time on airplanes is a good thing at this point, I'm sure. <laughs> What's that? Less time on airplanes is a good thing at, for you at this point for working with amateurs. Yeah, but I, I, I honestly don't think I'm spending less time traveling because, like I said, my kids are yeah, um, true. both racing BMX and Ryder obviously doing the freestyle. He's riding with micro circus guys. He's he's racing nationals and he's racing world championships and state races and cold cups. So, you know, when when I'm not at the the pro motor races, I'm either at an amateur national or I'm at a BMX race or a BMX event yeah. of some sort. So I'm still very very rare that I have a weekend at home. Right. Um, we were both mechanics around the same time, and I've told people this a few times that. I never want to go back and do it ever again. I mean, if I had to feed my family, I guess, I would go back and be a mechanic. But I couldn't do what I do now without me having been a mechanic. Uh, do you feel the same way? Like, you, it, it taught you a lot. It, you, you needed to do it, but no chance in hell you're going back? Um, well, it definitely taught me work ethic. Yep. And, you know, there's, there's just no, there's no days off. There's no vacation. There's no and, – uh, and it's a grind. And I do think it helped me – Obviously, with the experiences and the opportunities I had as a mechanic, it helped me transition into what I do now mm-hmm. and and be able to get into their riders' heads more and, and help them with bikes and all of those sorts of things. I do feel that my 15 years as a mechanic did a lot for that. It really did, for sure. Right. Um, hey, well, I guess let's talk a little bit. Yeah, you talked about touch on Derek Drake a little bit. And, yeah, I guess just the reset is needed in order for him. You, you never want to – Write write these kids off. You never know what could happen, but yeah, it's it's certainly welcome to the pro levels. Um, do you is your program for a guy like Derek Drake? Obviously, it's evolved a little bit, but 
how much different is it from when you took on uh, Ryan Villapoto as a pro? Like, how much you you know, like I said, you've learned a lot, I'm sure, but is there much difference? Um, no, not really. I mean, I mean, I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. I mean, if you look at if you look at like the general training that most motocross guys do, mm-hmm. they ride bicycles, they go to the gym, and they do motos. Yep. And I feel that it's a balance of, of those things and how you balance it with the rider and you know their energy levels and and obviously now we're at the pro level with him, so we really have to pay attention to our workload during the week and what we're going to get. Um, on the amateur side, um, I'm implementing all those same, I guess, tools mm-hmm. to what we're doing. Yep. Um, but if you know each week, you know it could be at a different level with a different rider, like. I mean, for example, I was at a track yesterday, and one of my riders that's a little bit more conditioned, he's doing his motos, and then another rider that I kind of just started with, I could see him kind of dropping, and we're getting really close to Loretta's, and I don't really want him to, like, dig a hole and not be able to recover. So I pulled him off the motor early, and the other rider was like, well, why did he get to pull off early? (laughs) And, And my point is, like, I have a schedule for each one of my riders, and if I pull you off, it's for a reason. If I don't, it's for a reason. So I feel like each one of them, like, do your thing, be where you're at, and let me work with the other riders the way they need to be worked with, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, because they're all at different levels, you know, they're on, they're at the track at the same time, but they may be different times on the track, um, different amount of sprints, different amounts of this or that. And when we do our gym stuff, one of them might have a lighter workload than the other one. It just it kind of depends on where they're at. And that's, that's what's been fun for me working on the amateur side yep. is that balance, really trying to find where they're at, what they need, how we can maximize what we're going to get before we go to the next race. Yeah, interesting, huh? Uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a science, like you said. Um, do the guys Do the guys nowadays do too much road biking, in your opinion? Can you do too much road biking? Um, if you really look at it, the general cycling that I would say most of the riders do is base rides. Mm-hmm. And they're usually keeping a pretty moderate heart rate, maybe 120 to like 140, and they're really not spiking that much. And you can do that a ton because that's just base. Yep. When you're really, really new to it, even those are going to dent you a little bit. But once you once you've done a couple of years on a training regimen, you can get up and you can do you know an hour to two hours on your road bike at that heart rate, and all it's going to do is benefit and help you with recovery and and maintain your fitness. Right. So you know, I don't really see many guys out there like doing intervals or time trials or sprints, you know, three four days a week along with their motos. If mm-hmm. they were doing that, then you would see definitely a bigger dip in some of their performances halfway through the season. Right. Do you uh, – is it funny, one of your old guys, Nick Way, now he's training at AC, so the circle continues, RL. You started working with uh, with Nick for a while there and uh, and RV, and now he's out there spreading on some of the things he learned from you on to Adam Cincirillo. Yeah, and uh, that's actually been pretty cool to watch him, and uh, obviously Nick's very passionate about what he does mm-hmm. in moto. He loves riding. He loves the training aspect of it. Um, the one thing with him when I worked with him was we had to put a leash on him. He yeah. really wanted to train a lot, yep. and he would do too much, as you know. And we kind of 
tapered them down, and we did less work with more effort. Mm-hmm. And and uh, I feel he's implementing that. And if you watch Adam, like Adam's just, he looks like he's firing on all his cylinders pretty much every time he's out there. Very, very unfortunate what happened in Vegas. Uh, but, I mean, the guys are going to make mistakes. I mean, that's just that's racing and that's part of life. So, Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. Hey, did you have any – so you start working with RV. When do you start working with, with Ryan Villapoto? Was it amateur I still? Yeah, I started with Ryan about three months before Loretta Lynn's in 05, his last amateur year. He just came off of uh, Broken Navicular when I started working with him. And who put you guys in touch? How did that work? Um, Ryan Holiday actually talked to him a little bit. Uh-huh. Um, as I was, like, leaving Cali, kind of my last mechanic deal. Yep. And and he was – he might have even been 15 at the time because I think he turned 16 at Loretta's that year. Um, and then I was at Kalia Creek, and I just started training riders. I had three other amateur kids that I was working with at the time. And I was doing some lap times, and his mechanic, Cheeseburger, some guys might remember him, he uh, he like, you need to go talk to Ryan. Uh-huh. And what was cool, Ryan Holiday already had. So when I went by there, um, his dad was standing there, and I, I went over to their house that afternoon, and, and uh, we just kind of put a deal together to get through the amateur stuff. And the last three nationals, because obviously as an amateur, you do you try to do yeah. the last three nationals. Yep. And uh we just tried to get through that, and if it went well, and everybody was getting along, then we worked on a deal for 06, and we ended up going halfway through 09, so it worked out pretty good. Yeah, it worked out really well, I'd say. Um, it's funny, the the you know, we all know the story. Michael Lessie was, beat him quite a bit uh, as an amateur. I, I just don't think anybody had RV plugged to be an all-time great, which is what he is now. Um but he right away he adapted to the pros fast, and before you know it, you guys were off and winning. Were you pretty surprised at that at his progression? Like, I mean, I don't think anybody they, look. He was going to be a, a good rider. We all knew that he was on pro circuit for a reason. But I don't think anybody thought that he would just rip off three straight national championships. Yeah, I mean, obviously that's a pretty tall order, and you can't sit here and say, "Well, no, I was." But with that being said. A couple of months into working with him, I saw him doing things on the bike that were just really natural to him. Mm-hmm. You know, he could change the line. He, did, he just just the way that he did things. He was doing things that you really can't teach a guy. And and uh, we basically started looking to to write those stuff that time. And he really never wavered. Like he okay, and just as Ryan's started training, you know, on the pro side of stuff, just we're doing 30, 35 minute motos, we're going to tracks out in the desert, uh, maybe doing the cycling and uh, he just kept making progress. I mean, we needed to, you know, obviously bounce him a little bit because mm-hmm. some stuff to work with, load was a little bit heavy and, or whatever, but he was very, very easy to manage because he really didn't overthink what he was doing. Right. And uh, I feel like that's why we, you know, so many of amateurs struggle a little bit more coming in and not really show their potential because they're, they're kind of worried about who's there, who's on the line, what their expectations are. And he was just like, we'd go to national his first year and I would want to walk the track and he'd be like, whatever, they're just corners. I'll go through them as fast as I can. You know, that was his, 
general attitude with racing. He knew he had ability. He knew he was good. He knew he was strong. Mm-hmm. And he just went out and executed. And it's really hard to get a rider to just go out and execute what they know how to do. Yep. You know, and, and I can attest to that again because we're, we're kind of in that boat again as we're moving forward with Derek. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Alden's got some funny stories, especially, you know, on, on the end, by the end where he had to just drag RV to do anything and, 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 and RV would just bitch and complain the whole time, but he did it. He did all the work cause he knew that he needed to do it to win, but it was never easy. There was a lot of complaints, a lot of, a lot of draw F bombs, everything else. How was he with you early on? Was he okay with do the work or did you hear the same stuff? He was, he was the same from the start. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, I had to go to his house in the morning. I had to drag him out of bed. I had to put his vitamins by his plate for food, and then I had to bring him into the truck and make him take him when he was on the way to the truck. I had to load the boots up. I mean, we were doing, like, wrist, like, rehab therapy stuff, and I'd be stretching his wrist, and I would stretch the wrong one, and he wouldn't even say anything. <laughs> and I'd be like, you know, we're doing the wrong wrist right now. He's like, oh, whatever. And that's just generally how he was he didn't put a lot of stress on what was going on that's crazy um yeah yeah it just but yet like he he dove into it and he was such a ferocious competitor on the track right like you're just like this guy yeah yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was it was amazing um what happened at the end that made him go to Alden? Did it uh, was a little bit of um, stuff going on with family a little bit of the Kawasaki guys I think the management that at the time wasn't stoked. What, how much can you tell us about that on why the relationship ended? Um, I, I think there's a lot of personal stuff going on in there. Um, I mean, we work together, and, you know, when you work with a rider, it's a business. Yep. Um, I train riders, that's my business. They race motocross, that's their business. Um, but you spend so much time together at such a young age, you do become friends, and, and we became friends with the family. Everybody was very close. We had a great relationship. Uh, there were times during those four years uh-huh. where he would, he would talk to Mitch was really close with him and, you know, even Bones and the guys at PC. And uh, he'd be like, I, I feel like I need to change. Or I feel like I need this. And he'd be like, it's working. You guys get along. Yeah. Keep it rolling. Keep it rolling. Keep it rolling. Um, we had a little bit of a dip with his energy levels and some things when he got on the 450. And again, whether it was stress related or whatever, because uh-huh. he was right, right during the week. Um, but I would see a little bit of a dip, so I'd like bring the workload off, and he'd show up, and he was oh. a little bit lethargic on the bike, and yep. he just wasn't firing on all eight, you know, in that beginning of his 450 series. So we ended up having to take, you know, a couple weeks off the bike. Yep. I think he missed two races, and then the weekend off. And it was during that was when I had a meeting with him, and he basically gave me my last check and said that he needed to move forward. I feel like some of it came from management at Cali. Yep. Um, I think their expectations for him was to take over where James left off. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a tall order for a rookie. Um, and he went and he won the next race. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, you know, so if you look back, I feel like we did do a good job of management and what we needed to do and had him in a position where he could win races. And, and again, it goes, it does go beyond that. It goes to, like a personal level, because you're so close with these guys. Yeah. And, uh, and we get along great. And, I mean, just last week or two weeks ago, I posted, 
Derek riding our soundtrack and like help tapping these big rollers. And, like it's pretty sweet. Like people that ride that know it's pretty gnarly. Yep. And uh, I had a comment from Ryan on there. Oh, it looks like old days. You know. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We get to when I see him at Loretta's or you know wherever at the track, we hang out. Oh, that's good. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's good. Right. Things happen. Things end, and all of that. He. He also uh, um, didn't uh, part ways with his old mechanic throttle at the same time. Like, it was a really weird deal for him, you know? Uh, yeah. yeah. It, it was, yeah. When he moved into the, to the Kawasaki thing, there was – I mean, I, I, maybe if he went in, he didn't, maybe if he took over where James left off. Yeah. Just winning races, then, you know, maybe things would have been different. Right, right. Yeah, you just Manage, – yeah. Management, when you're not winning, is very, very impatient. Right. And, Rightly, rightly so. But so he was a rookie. Sense. He was doing fine. I remember he was doing no, I, fine. I, I know. I mean, he's yeah. been on the podium. Yeah. He, he won heat races. Like, he made a couple passes on James. You know, he, I felt he was in a very, very good position. Uh-huh. But again, my expectation of where he should have been, I thought he was there. Right. And maybe my expectation was different than management. So. Yeah. Uh Randy Lawrence on the Fly Racing Racer X podcast presented by Alpine Stars and Maxis. Uh, thanks for listening, everybody. Appreciate it. Uh, RL, you go back a long ways in this sport. Um, early years, like there was a bit of a click going on there. From what I, from what I understand, there, you know, there was your brother Phil, of course, who was a factory rider later on. Yourself, the Albrechts, Jeremy, uh, Jimmy Button was around, traveling a little bit. Emig was coming out from Kansas at the time. I'm talking. 80s and 125s and all of that. What a cool, yeah. What a cool era for for so SoCal Moto. You know, it was it was unbelievable, and I do see some of the the pro guys riding together now more than they were maybe even five six years ago. Yep. But back then, these were like these were like super mini kids to like 125 A riders, 125 B riders, but everybody rode together and. And uh, they made so much progress. As soon as they turned pro, they were all really, really good. Yeah. So early 90s, there was a huge surge that came into the pro ranks that just really kind of took over. And, you know, the guys that were in there at that time were kind of just kind of pushed out the pack. And, yep. And from, I would say from the early 90s, where there was like six or eight guys that came in that were like capable of winning. Now, even from then to probably even now, mm-hmm. you'll get one or two every couple of years that can come in and right. make it then. You're not getting the the eight or ten guys anymore. Um, but again, racing is different now than it was then. I mean, we, we definitely had had fun with well, it. We enjoyed it. Um, the training was there. The riding, the riding for sure was there. Yeah, like those guys put in a lot of effort. Well, you guys did. Uh, you got to remember, you did the uh, uh, the, the Transcal races, the um, you know the Golden State Series, right? You did Paris races. You know, you raced pro together. Whenever, like it was, seemed like everybody was just. I know Budman was in the mix too. I guess I forgot him, but like it was, it was all of these guys racing all of the time together, right? Oh yeah, they were. I mean, they would do like some of the guys would come and do Anaheim Saturday night, and then they're at a Transcal at yeah. Carlsbad the next morning. Yeah. On Sunday, so still racing some amateur stuff. Um, and nowadays, like you try to get your guys to okay, we need to do <laughs> REM on Saturdays just to have some gate time. Yeah. And uh, half the time you're 
you're fighting with them to get them to go do it. Right. It's crazy. Yeah, different time. And, and, they, were, and they were making money, too, back then. You know, they were able to yeah. race and make money. And um, was uh, Who was the fastest? Like, transport yourself back to, like, 88, 80, 88, 87. It wasn't Jeremy, was it? Who was the fastest? Was, well, no, it was not Jeremy. Jeremy kind of really just started at the time. Yeah. Because um, he came from, like, the BMX thing and just kind of jumped into it. Um, I would say at that time, the one that looked like he was probably going to come in and just smash it would have been, okay, a couple of them would be, like, Jimmy Button and yep. Ryan Weed. Yeah. Um, Phil was good. My brother was good. Right. Um, but he would be off of what Ryan used to do. Um, Jeremy and Phil were probably very similar. Jimmy Gaddis was really good. Yeah. Um, so, but, it, but, but again, they all rode together, and they would put laps in together, and they'd go. And then we didn't have all prepped on Monday and Tuesday. We didn't have milestone prep. We didn't have them home prep yeah. every week. We yeah. didn't have all of these. So we were out in the desert just putting in, like, gnarly motos for the most part. Um, so I think a little bit that's missing nowadays, but definitely the guys that I work with use those tracks more than uh, yeah than the guys that don't well, work with me. So I think this is another question, another podcast for another time, but these riding facilities that are watered and tilled and dissed up, when we race as nations and they just leave the tracks – our guys struggle, and it's part of the reason. They, they, our elite guys ride perfect tracks a lot, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, th- I, th- I do feel like the, the facilities are pretty good in a way, and I do know, like, some of the East Coast ones probably get a little rougher than what we get on your normal, like, Milestone Monday. Uh-huh. Uh, but we do have a couple of our tracks that try to leave it and make it deeper and a little bit more difficult on, on certain days of the week. But I would say... You know, I worked with Montford last year and and uh, Derek last year before Loretta's, and, uh-huh. and uh, we did a couple things on the on the rough outdoor tracks, and uh, a couple things at his property, at Carson's property up in the desert. Yep. That we were able to train in California, and went there and won titles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's yeah. So you, I mean, you're smart enough to know that, right? As as a trainer, as a as an old racer. Um, yeah. How how far did you take your racing, your dirt bike racing? I mean, were you just like, ah, oh, Phil's way better at me, I, I quit? How far did you take it? Um, my dirt bike racing went to, like, 125B level. Yep. Pretty good B. Like, yep. not terrible, but... Yep. And I never did, like, a Loretta Lynn B deal. I was kind of out before that, but my interest at that point kind of veered me towards spreading the BMX, like, freestyle stuff yeah, at yeah. that time. And uh, I just told my dad let me do that and just kind of put a little bit more effort into yeah. Phil and let him try to, you know, do what he can. Was Phil always really good the whole time? Like, do you ever remember Phil no. working no. at it? No? Okay. <laughs> no, kind of when I stopped, like he, you know, when he decided to start racing, he was actually going to the motorcycle shop to get um, an ATC 200X. <laughs> so he was going to get a three-wheeler. <laughs> I he didn't know this. I didn't know. And this. when he got, yeah, and when he got to the shop, he saw YZ80. He was like, "Oh, I should probably just get that." <laughs> and he got that, and that—that's kind of what made him start racing, and not just mobbing around out in the desert, bouncing through cactuses. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know Phil was almost a pro uh, three wheeler racer. That was yep, almost his yep. destiny. Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Oh, that's good. Um, hey, so uh, when do you first meet Jeremy? 
What do you remember? I met Jeremy like in those years when he was like novice with Ryan and Phil and like okay. those guys. That's kind of when we met. Yeah. Um, Eric Carter was a BMX racer at the time. He was really good friends with Jeremy. And uh, we just kind of see each other, like obviously in Richie Canyon with uh, the Albrecht's their place. And then mm-hmm. I started going to a couple of the amateur nationals, kind of helping my brother, yep. you know, working on his bikes and stuff. And then we just basically kind of became friends then and just it really never stemmed send into anything like working right. together-wise until later in the 90s. Yeah, yeah, but uh, it must have been really neat to see this guy – and you know we've all talked we've all talked about it. His his he he won 125 novice or something in Loretta's, and that was it. And just all of a sudden, just really blossomed. And, and he brought BMX as we as we all know to to moto a little bit of BMXing, which is really cool. And and yeah. I, you know you you kind of saw this. Yeah, and and what was crazy is is the riders even still don't really ride Supercross that much growing up. Yeah, and that's where he was really good. So he never really had opportunity to shine because he was just racing outdoors with sure. Ryan Hughes, who was super <laughs> who was some sort of he was just an animal out there outdoors. <laughs> yeah, so he had he had the other the other guys that were outshining him outdoors. Not that he was bad, right? He just wasn't as good as them. But he was a more technical rider. He was more slow. Yeah, like, he would drive these things a little bit different. Right, and when he was able to start riding Supercross. It really didn't take him long to figure it out, and yeah. once he started getting, he knew how to ride backside to jumps. He knew how to use like on the faces. He knew how to like basically pump yep. a supercross track with suspension on the throttle. Yeah, he he would he just he stayed so much lower than everybody. Like you said, he just used his legs, used his tires, backside of the stuff. It was phenomenal. It was like James scrubbing, you know, early on. It was like, how was Jeremy doing that? How is two guys yeah. hitting the face of a triple, and he's four feet lower? Exactly. That's just that's length and how much weight you're putting on the face of that jump. Right. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, hey, so when do you you're helping Phil? You're being a mechanic. When do you start doing it? Like, think about you want to do it full time. Um, I never really thought I wanted to do it full time. I was just like going to the going to the races with him and hanging out, and I still had my BMX bikes with me, and that's kind of what I was doing at the time. Right. And that industry kind of died. Mm-hmm. So, like, any any of the sponsorships that I had at that time kind of went away. You know, bike sponsorships went away. Um, contests went away. And uh, I was kind of at that, like, top-level expert getting ready to maybe turn pro, flatland, mm-hmm. whether it was yep. or even skate parks or whatever. Yep. And there was just nothing left there, and then... And then uh, Jer- Joel Albrecht asked me to come and help him, you know, as he was transitioning over to NT or DGY, mm-hmm. Yamaha. Yep. And uh, so I'm like, well, okay, we were really good friends with him. I basically lived in Richie Canyon anyway. Yep. And uh, so we just kind of started doing that. And about halfway through that year, literally like out of the blue, and I don't even know how it happened still to this day, I got a call from Duffy Box, who was at Yamaha, and he was like, wanted me to come and be his mechanic. And I didn't have a ton of experience at the time. Right. And uh, he needed somebody, and and I was like, This is, what year okay. is this? What year is this? Nine, 1990. 90. So he's a support rider at this point for Yamaha, right? Yeah. 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 Thanks for listening to the Fly Racing Racer X podcast with Randy Lawrence. 
RL. A good interview, for sure. Thank you uh, for checking this out. Check out the archives. Steve Mathis Show, Volume 1, 2, and 3. Not on, the, not on the same Steve Mathis feed. We've uh, had so many shows, we pushed them out to an ar- archive feed. So please check that out. A lot of great podcasts buried in there that uh, you've probably never heard. Or if you have heard, go back and listen again. So, yeah, please. I get a lot of people asking me to do podcasts with certain guys, or I see people talking about podcasts with certain guys that I've talked to and done and gone a deep dive into. And, um, yeah, it's been it's been great. So please check that out, man. Appreciate it. Fly Racing, flyracing.com. Official gear of Zach Osborne. Yeah. Like Baggett, Benny Bloss, Justin Bogle, Ben LeMay, just to name a few. Zane Merritt, also wearing Fly Racing. Thanks to Racetech, Racetech.com. Get your motor work done. Get some suspension work done from the folks at Racetech. They will dial you in. Uh, great guys there, and uh, they uh, absolutely know what they're doing when it comes to motors and suspension. So they will uh, will help you out. Mention Pulp 19 to save. And uh, Zombie Chris Blose also used Racetech suspensions and motors this year to kill it in 250 Supercross West. So these guys know what they're doing. They've been around a long time. Thanks, Alpine Stars, uh, the Tech 10 boot, the most advanced boot in, boot in motocross today. Thank you, Maxxis Tires, MXST, available from the folks at Maxxis, developed by RL's old rider, Jeremy McGrath. So, Thanks for listening. Appreciate it. Let's go right back into the Fly Racing Racer X podcast with Randy Lawrence. What? So, uh, yeah, how do you – you don't even know how he got your number. You don't even know how, why he called you or anything. I, yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> I really don't know. And, uh... <laughs> right. Um. So are you with him when he wins San Jose? And uh, that was his first Supercross win, and it was my first Supercross win as a, as a mechanic. Oh, so you were there then. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. So we always have that. Right. Every time we see him, you know, I, I actually see him quite a bit at the races still. Right. So it's pretty fun when we kind of hang out. Yeah. Um, so you're driving a box fan and driving his van and doing the whole the whole thing like like kind of how we used to do it. That's that's your I'm move. I'm driving the box van. I probably put more time on his bikes than he did. <laughs> <laughs> um and then where do you go from there? Um from there I went to a support kid that wrote for Suzuki. You might know him, David Pingree. Oh yeah, just a little bit. Right. Yeah. Um when he was when Ping was an amateur when Ping was in it, well, no, he had just turned pro. Just, just turned pro, up. okay. Yeah, yep. Um, yeah, he he credits you a lot with the training. Like he didn't know anything about training, and then he was, yeah, and yeah. and honestly, at that time, none of us really did. Like we really didn't like call it training. I mean, it was riding. Like I would always just kind of structure motos mm-hmm. and make sure they did that, and you know, I'd make sure we kind of did some gym stuff here and there. There really wasn't any cycling anything at the time, but we would like ride mountain bikes for fun. Um, but that was kind of the early days of, of starting to get some more structure to what was going on. Right. Um, huh, uh, so this would have been 93? That was 94. 94. Ping uh, yeah. uh, on a Suzuki uh, with Suzuki support. Ping on right. a Suzuki. And then Mitch rolled up to his box van at Troy, Ohio. Uh-huh. I think after the first moto, and it was like, I was working on the bike, changing tires open, and Ping sitting there in his gear, and Mitch is like, do you want to ride for me next year? <laughs> and Ping was like, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think I do. Right. Call me Monday. And I was like, sick. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good. Did you go there with him? Um, I did go there with him. Yeah. And and that and that was that was old Mitch Payton, like when he was very angry, yelling a lot, and working you a ton. 
Uh, yep, that was that match paid me. Right, right. Um, when does the mountain bike stuff come into it for you? When does that sort of happen? When do, when does that passion get into into it for you? Um, well, that's that's funny. I mean, I I rode mountain bikes a little bit. I mean, very very little. But I met Greg Herbold, who was like a at that time like downhill world champion. Mm-hmm. Um, super cool guy, but he loved moto. Like he was in the moto. Like he basically raced mountain bikes so he could make money to ride his motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I got him some parts through Yamaha, you know, like yeah. old plastics or whatever. Right. And uh, he got me a mountain bike, so I ride that a little bit. And then I remember we were at Red Bud in '95, and I was sitting in the hotel room with um, Dave Castillo, and we saw a downhill mountain bike race on TV. And I'm like, dude, I could do that. I know I could do that for sure. And he's like, you should. I'm going to call the guy from my aunt, and we're going to get you bikes, and you're going to race mountain bikes next year. Really? And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I went back, and that's when Pro Circuit Shop was next door to Troy Lee. Yeah. And at lunch, I walked over to Troy's um, shop, and I walked in his office and sat down, and I was like, would you help me with, Helmets and stuff. If I race mountain bikes next year, I'm gonna race pro downhill. Yeah, <laughs> he, was, he was like, "Do you even ride bikes?" <laughs> You're like, "Yeah, sure." It doesn't seem that hard. So, so what was was like? They did Wednesday night rides from the from their shop. Uh huh. So that week, I went with them. It was like a big group in the shop, and I like did a manual down the street as we were coming back, and. When we got done, he was like, that was sick. I'll give you whatever you need. <laughs> <laughs> that was your audition right there. You know, with a borrowed bike from Intent and did well. And and that's when me and Sean Palmer decided we were going to race yeah. downhill the next year. And we rode for Intent. And yeah, that's crazy. More leathers, right. More leathers and flat pedals and moto helmets and have fun with it. Yeah, Jeff Steber, the owner of Intense, was in uh, the studio here at Pulp show uh, a couple months ago. Yeah, and was, I remember that. Yeah, and was telling me all about it. Crazy time, and, and the way he made it sound like Palmer was the same way. Palmer was like, yeah, I think I can do that, and then he, he yeah. just he just crushed it. <laughs> yeah, that, I, mean, we were, I mean, obviously he, he excelled and, you know, did a little better than I did, but I mean, I came basically off the couch yep. changing tires and air filters and Jumped in and was racing World Cups and yeah, and national downhills with the best guys in the world in eight months. Right. So it was a it was a good time. Definitely, definitely very memorable and a huge part of my life. Did you make? Were you making much money? How was the salary back then? How was that series <laughs> and all that? Was it? It wasn't hard to go from what Mitch was paying to racing mountain bike. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Definitely a lot more fun. Right. Yeah, for sure. So when does MC call you to, to pick up the wrenches again? How does that work? Uh, Jeremy actually called me. I was riding I was riding for Yeti at the time. Mm-hmm. I, I did my first season with Intense, and then I got to deal with Yeti for the next year. Mm-hmm. And then kind of halfway through that season, Jeremy called me when he was going to go to Suzuki. And we started talking. We were kind of spending time on his boat in Canyon Lake in the summer and we were yep. wakeboarding and hanging out. He's like, Hey, you want to come and do it? Like, 
he wanted somebody that could do the job that was a friend uh-huh. that he could kind of hang out with, and, and it just seemed like it would be a little bit less pressure at that point for him. And uh, I was like, yeah, well, I was like all in to kind of come back and do it for him. And he got a call from another mechanic that was a good mechanic in the industry. And, uh, and, uh, tried her going. And, uh, you just wanted to do that? Did, yeah. He, well, he did, he did it for less. Oh, okay. So Jeremy was like, and, uh, so I said, well, if he can do it for that, go ahead. Cause I mean, I still had opportunity, right, to race mountain bike. Yeah. So I, I went ahead and did that. And then, you know, obviously his year at Suzuki didn't go. Yep. As well as he was expected. I mean, he still finished second, so people were saying, like, his career was over. That's ridiculous. Oh, I know, right? Yeah, he, he was a, a clutch and a flat tire away from winning another title. Exactly. And no. And um, so after that, I got a call from Larry Brooks, who was putting this privateer program together through Yamaha, a chaparral, you know, they kind of did the chaparral thing before yep. with a couple other guys. Um, and it really didn't work, but I knew Jeremy. I knew all the guys at Yamaha. I knew Larry. Yep. So I was kind of like the nucleus of that like little network there. Right. Yep. And, we just started talking a little bit. I flew to the last national with Larry, just kind of hang out and talk. And, and Jeremy was there, obviously. It was his last race on the Suzuki. Yep. And uh, we kind of ended up going to dinner. And uh, he was really nervous because he was obviously stoked with Honda's program and, and how they ran things and tested and developed their bike. Yeah, yeah. And Suzuki left a little bit of that on the table, uh-huh. he thought. Yep. And he wasn't sure where Yamaha would be. Like, he didn't know if it would be like Honda or if it was going to be like Suzuki. Right. And at that time, I just, I'd been with the Yamaha guys for three years with Dubok previous. Mm-hmm. And I said, these guys, these guys will do everything they can to put a bike under you that you can win on. Yep. And I feel like at dinner that night is what helped him make his decision to go to Yamaha because he was really borderline going back to Honda because he knew he could win on a Honda. Sure. Yeah, he, he hated the aluminum frame, but he could win. He, he knew that. Yeah, he, yeah, he, he knew he Honda was all in. But he wanted to. He really wanted to try to go somewhere else, so that it would be Jeremy that won and not Honda that won. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly right. Like, uh, he, he, yeah, everybody would be looking at that. Um, but honestly, in ninety. Oh, by the way, were you there when the ankle got cut? Um, no, I was not at that phase when the ankle got cut. Okay, all no. right, just checking on that. <laughs> um, the The funny thing is, is the Yamaha in '98 uh, was a better bike than the than the Honda, anyways, production wise, a lot better. Yeah, so, well, and it was a better bike than the Yamaha was in '97. Yeah, yep. So, um, well, so uh, yeah, so that kicks it off. So, your Chaparral Yamaha, and he just never really misses a beat, does he? Just that's it. Just keeps um, going. It, I, it, the beginning was a little bit of a struggle. We, we went to some overseas races, and he was, like, falling in corners, and, and uh, he just wasn't riding like he was when we were at the test track. And uh, we started kind of looking at, at how he rode and what he was doing and, and losing the front end. And uh, we kind of narrowed it down to, you know, when he would get in the corner, he would look up really, really early at the exit or the next obstacle or whatever it was. And 
you just trust the front and there was something missing in the front end that it just wasn't getting traction. Okay. So we, with the Yamaha guys, again, they went to work, and we did a, tons of testing, triple clamps and fork heights, and, and you could do, you mm-hmm. know, weighting the, the rear different, you know, changing the gearing to get more weight on the front end. You know, there's tons of things you can do. Yeah. And really kind of the test race for all that was the Chaparral Christmas Classic Supercross at Glen Hill. Oh, yeah. I remember that thing, yeah. And, and he won that, and then he was like, okay, I'm comfortable with my bike. <laughs> and then, obviously, it took a, a few races to get yeah. him yeah, I think on he, top of the podium. But yeah, I think it took three races. Or Yogi won one, and, and Tortelli won the one, right? Took a little bit. Was that? I think yeah, that was Tortelli a year. won the first one. Um, Ezra was riding really good. He missed his gate pick at L.A., so he got a bad start. So he wasn't obviously he didn't win that one, but Tortelli won that one. I think Emmett was second and Jeremy was third, and then went to Houston. I think it was, and I forget who won that one, but Jeremy didn't win it. I think he was on the podium, and then Phoenix he almost won that one, and Ezra passed him with in the last corner. He won by like that's probably the closest race with the exception of the with Webb and Rocks in this yeah. year. Yeah. And then we went to Seattle, and I made a couple of bets with him and a little bit of, of a deal. Uh-huh. And uh, he won that race, and he won the next four after Well, yeah. he won four in a row. So he won that one, and then he won the next three. Right. And it was so kind of over from there. Um, yeah, it was kind of, yeah. Uh, then he, he's actually leading the outdoors that year until he breaks his wrist. He actually broke his wrist in, in Pontiac. During the Supercross season that year, oh, did when he? His broke. When his when he oh, passed, yeah. his handlebars broke off. Yep, yep, I remember that. He broke his wrist, and then the next weekend, Charlotte was kind of a mess. Um, that's when Wyndham won as a like as a one twenty five rider. Yep. And uh, Big Jack came in and said, "Throw that bike away. We're not using it again." Because <laughs> <laughs> he had two bad weekends in a row. Yeah. And then he wrapped up the title the next week in Dallas, and then one Vegas with some spokes rig. Folks ripped out from the first turn. Um, that's when we ran blue hair. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He wrapped the title up before the end of the series. So we did that. And then uh, Glenn Helen wasn't great, but it was good. You know, he was right there for the win. I think he won the second moto, and then he won both motos at Kingtown. Mount Morris didn't go that great. He got a fifth overall. He was just struggling trying to hang on. Um, we kind of knew that he had a broken navicular, and at that point, he decided he was going to sit out and get the wrist fixed so he could be good for Supercross the next year, and he had a 17-point lead. Yeah. Huh. Um, so I was, I was actually in Southwick when we decided to have it not go. So yeah. the bike was rebuilt, ready to go, and I got the phone call. He ain't coming. And then uh, and then he never raced the outdoors again as far as the series. That was it. He never, 99, nope, he said he was Supercross was, only. Yeah. Yep, that was it. Which is good for you, RL. You got summers off. It was sweet. Well, that's when I started racing mountain bikes again in the summer. Right, right. Oh, that's yeah. funny. Um, uh, yeah, it was just an amazing combination, an amazing time. He, I always tell people, like, I, I guess I'm a little bit of a fanboy with Jeremy, but, man, I was there, and he handled the pressure with ease. He handled the fans with ease. I tell the story about how he was the coolest guy to me when I was just a greaseball mechanic. Um 
I just I don't know if we've ever had a champion like him, man. And I I, ha- I hate to be the guy RL that walks uphill to school both ways and you know talks about the old days, but I'm serious. Like when he was racking off all these wins, he never really changed. He had time for everybody. He was professional. He said the right things. He looked he looked cool. I don't know, man. Yeah, I just I I, I don't know if we've ever had a guy like that in our sport. Well, I I agree, and I don't. And I, I take a little bit. I take a page out of that book, and you know, with the writers that I work with, right. I try to get them to enjoy what they're doing. Yes, it's a lot of work and it's a grind and it, it's a daily everything that you have to be the best. But we have to find a way to enjoy it. We got to joke around. We got to clown a little bit. We got to write, go do go karts. We got to, you know, jump beach cruisers, and we got to like just do, just do kid stuff. Like uh-huh. that's what they are. They're kids and. And uh, they're phenomenal at what they do, but they have to be able to have some fun with it or it just becomes a grind and they're over it. They don't want to do it. Yep. And I think that's that was the hard part for RV is that it was just always a grind. Like there was a point with RV that, you know, Fuel TV was on and they had all these skateboard shows. He was going to become a skateboarder. <laughs> so he bought skateboards with his cousin and I talked to one of my friends to come and build a ramp for him. And like, he was all about it. And then when he couldn't do like Ollie's very good, he quit. <laughs> yeah, that was it. Yeah. But he was he was in and out of different things all the time. But he was like seventeen, eighteen years old. Like that's what kids do. Well, dude, I don't think those guys do anything nowadays. It's no, a, I mean it's yeah. over. And, yeah. And uh, I, I and I still I still try to implement a little bit of like enjoyment for him. Yeah. You know, like. Yeah. Uh, somebody who was riding with the uh, the Rattray group told me one time, they were like, hey, can we go to another track? No. Okay, cool, thanks. We can't even ride another track. We can't even go to another person's yeah. house. Like, what? Yeah, see, like, that, that to me, like, I mean, I usually ask my guys, hey, well, you want to go ride? I yeah. mean, there, there's times when I'm like, look, we're going to Hemet, and you're doing these motos. Yeah. And they're like, oh, man. Yeah. But there's also times I'm like, okay, we're going to go right here, and we're not going to use clipboard today, and you're just going to do that. Right, right. You know, there has to be those times, too. I know. So. I know. There's not enough of them. Um, would it be fair to say at some point, RL, uh, in the Chaparral days, winning all these races, Supercross-only deal, you yourself lost your way a little bit? Is that, would that be fair to say? Um, I don't really know if it was the time off. I think it was just uh, the – Influence in the industry at that time yep. was, uh, I mean, everybody was kind of having a good time. And I, yeah. and I don't, I don't think the racer guys were, like, living life like Quest of Demons of Dirt. Mm-hmm. But they were closer to it than what the guys are now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, so yeah. there was, there was I mean, that influence was coming in. And, and uh, I mean, a clothing company called Pornstar was sponsoring riders. <laughs> Uh, so that's we true. were going to that's a good point. we were going to we we're going to like punk rock shows with the Motor Trip Lex guys and yeah and of course Demons of Dirt video premieres and and uh, obviously it was a little bit of a different time yeah it was a lot of fun but it was definitely easy to kind of get lost in it mm-hmm. um, I really don't think I ever lost my drive and my effort to give it everything for my job right but I think the personal life kind of and and I wasn't really like partying and just getting hammered all the time and like there, there was none of that it was just i was a little bit looser yeah away from that away from the job yeah and it happens you get you get caught up it's a good time and let's face it i mean 
you know, you, you're building the bike and everything else, but it's not a ton of work, Supercross only. Not like you're, you know, yeah. you know, I, I've been there. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it was a different time. Um, so when do you go to Cowie? I, I went to Cowie in 2001. Okay. I did Jeremy 98, 99, 2000. Yep. Actually, no. And then I kind of free agented myself like just working on bikes and stuff in 2001. Okay. And then I talked to Ezra at the end of 2000 as he was transitioning over to Cali. Over Cali, yeah. And then I, then I talked to Bruce Sernstrom, who's the team manager there now, now, but he was there at that time also and went in and met them. And I ended up spending three years there now. And that happened to be, you know, the first year James came in on 125 and was part of the team. So, mm-hmm. uh, you guys won a Supercross with Yogi. Uh, we did. Yeah. We won Phoenix in 2003. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah. And uh, and he got a either 15th or an 18th the weekend before in Anaheim. <laughs> and people had asked me. I was doing an interview, and they'd asked me if I was surprised that he won Phoenix. And I said, no, I was surprised he got 15th, but I'm not. Yeah. Because he rode like that every day of the week. Yeah. He was, he was another guy that had, as we all know, like, oodles of talent. Yeah. And he was just an amazing rider. And just. He really was. He, he... Of, yeah, things were missing a little bit when he got to the races. So. Um, I tell the story in 04, he rode Mach 1 Yamaha and he got our yeah. old work stuff. I was still at Yamaha then. And dude, he was as fast as Chad before the season started. He was oftentimes faster at the test track than anybody during the week. He would wad up in the middle of the day, get up, put some new bars on and then go just as fast. Like he was a, he was a bulldog and he was fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. He was gnarly. Yeah. I don't yeah. think I don't think he got enough credit, you know, for I mean he won a lot of races and all that, but I don't think he doesn't hang around yeah. now, you know, and all that. So I don't think Yogi gets enough credit, but man, he was good. He was really good. Um yeah. what'd you do after Cowie? After Cowie, it was uh my third year there I I went in house and I just did testing. Mm-hmm. I kind of built test bikes and practice bikes for it was Michael Byrne at the time and James Stewart. James was getting onto the two fifty for yeah. that year. Right. So I kinda with uh, Skip Norfolk and myself, we kind of did all the testing for mm-hmm. the guys. Yep. And when, when they were in California, I would take them to the track, um, build the bikes. Um, I was in charge of James's James's practice bikes the whole summer before, his last year on the 125. So then I was kind of in charge of building um, his 250s, his practice bikes. I was flying to his house to kind of keep bikes together. Dude, how was that? How many friggin' bikes would he go through? Um. Well, in '04 for the summer, we obviously had a couple of he had a couple of race bikes on the truck. Yeah, and then we had four practice bikes that we would basically juggle <laughs> shipping to and from Florida. Yeah, every two every two weeks, I would get um, a crate with just nothing left of a bike, <laughs> and I'd pull that out and I'd roll a brand new one in there, and yeah. it would go away. Yep, and then I would get another crate back with another one that was destroyed. Right. And put another new one in it. And oh. It was basically this rotation all summer. And for good reason, I mean, watch a couple of videos from that, and he's gnarly. 
the frames are stretched. Stretch frames, oh, are, frames are just garbage. Especially, just remember garbage. Cowies, the quality control back then for Cowies wasn't the greatest. You know? It wasn't the greatest, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and this guy's so, riding this fast, pushing the bike yeah. that much, right? Yeah, so so fast forward a little bit. You know, we did some of the 250 stuff with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it was actually kind of in that off season before the 05 season started. Yeah. I started talking to a couple of kids and they, they wanted just some advice on training and stuff. And, and, uh, so I talked to them a little bit and I just kind of give them like an idea of what to do, like during the week and, and whatever. And then they wanted to do a little bit more. So as we got into, um, the Supercross season, um, couple of things went a little bit weird with the team so i was like uh here's my two weeks and then i'm gonna go start training riders oh really and they were like yeah they were like what you're a trainer now <laughs> well i think so you're like yeah i've done a lot of it in my life so i got a pretty good idea of what's going on out there so so i did that and like i said before like i had three riders at the time and uh we just started going to the track and doing our thing and about two months after that was when right. i was standing there at Kalia and Ryan's mechanic right. was like, hey, you need to go talk to Ryan. Yeah. He just had to do a PC. Right. Um, what, what was, it, was it management at Cowie? Was kind of what happened, or was there something, <clears throat> something else? Um, just clicks. Yeah. Just, Little clicks. Yeah. Didn't feel like you were digging it I anymore? <laughs> I couldn't take getting run over too many more bosses. So. Right, right. Um, yeah, I hear you on that. Uh, wow, R.L., what a, what a career you've had. What? what what was the cool? What was some of the coolest moments for you? Do, do, do moments stand out for you? Like, you know, like I, I got a few. You know, winning a national with Kelly Smith and and winning Summercross, of course, beating you at Summercross in '99, yeah. which I still talk about. But you have literally hundreds of those things. Um, um I don't, I don't know. Really, what's cool is like, um, I, I, I have ton, like I have every single front number plate from the Supercrosses that me and Jeremy won together. Really? Oh, and they're, that's they're cool. hanging in my garage. Yeah, I have. Probably ninety percent of every other professional number plate off of Ryan. Um, I have Jason's first win number plate from Salt Lake. I have the Nation's number plates. I have Jake Weimer's number plates. I have Blake Wharton's number plates. Yeah, yeah. So any rider that I've won races with uh, at a professional race, I have. And now I have a couple of, like Loretta, you know, title number plates. Um, so those are always good for like stories that come up. Yeah, yeah. You remember that um, the, the race that those plates came from? As far as you know, a couple races that stand out, they really all do. I mean, it's so hard to even win one race in this in in this industry in the sport. Yeah, that you're very very lucky to be able to work with a champion that that does it a lot. And when you get them, it it means a lot every single time. Yeah. So I can't really look at one. I mean, obviously. Ryan winning a championship his first year, you know, having that plate is really cool. You know, getting three championships with Jeremy, who's like an icon of the sport still, you know, that's really, really cool. Like, there's so many key moments. And knowing what what Anderson dealt with his first couple of years racing, uh-huh. the anxiety, just not being fit, like having meetings with the team so he didn't get let go, like, so many things went on yeah. for him to build and get to where he needed to be. To be there with him when he won his first Supercross was, you know, that was just yeah amazing. Yeah, you know, so yeah. there's just always these 
these defining moments, and they really come with each one of those wins, you know. Yeah, every, everything everything up on the on the garage has some sort of story behind it. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, cool, man. Uh, what a what a career, what a life. You just, I mean, yeah, when people talk about the you know, '90s moto and they lo- they miss the '90s moto, and dude, you lived it. You are '90s moto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and honestly, like I, I still feel the same. Yeah, obviously, like I'm I'm 51 now, and and uh, a little bit older than obviously the guys I'm working with now. I mean, my kids are older than some of the kids that are that I'm working. Yeah, but it's it's going great. I'm enjoying it, and I, I feel like I have a, a better opportunity now to do a better job. Like I'm not just a pro nationals, like pigeonholed. Yep. I'm I'm at pro nationals. I'm at amateur nationals. I'm at BMX nationals and world championships. I'm at freestyle contests. I'm at Woodward all the time. Uh-huh. Or at Nitro Circus stuff. So I mean, I'm like all over the place, and and that's really been my whole life. Like I've I've always had more passion than just being a mechanic or yeah. just being a trainer yeah. Yeah. at the motocross at the uh- motocross track. Like. I've always enjoyed all of this other stuff, and they've always been passions of mine. And being able to to do and live those also, you know, even now is awesome. Like I did 51 miles on my road bike this morning, and now I'm going to skate park to ride ramps with my kid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard to put you in a box as far as like, hey, this is what Randy likes. It's like, no, like you're you're doing as much as you can, and you got a lot of interest. It's cool, you know. Yeah, and it's yeah. And it is hard because I get, I mean, it takes so much equipment to do all these things. We just, <laughs> right. There's so much stuff around the house and in the garage. You're just like, geez, right. can I just like enjoy one of them? Yeah. Just make life so much easier. But, yeah. but no, I really like it. And, you know, I'm healthy enough to do it all still. And, sure. you know, I'm going to keep doing it. And, you know, and I think it keeps, you know, the riders that I work, they're anywhere from like 15 to like 23 or 24. And it kind of keeps them on their toes. Yeah, so, yeah, that's a good point. Especially when you can outride them or outskate them or anything or whatever. Right? Well, I mean, they got me in the dirt bike, but that's about it. So. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> um, no, man, uh, really cool. Thanks for the time. Appreciate the Fly Racing Racer X podcast presented by Maxis and Alpine Stars. Uh, always a guy that, uh, like I said, you've done it all and had a lot of success in the industry, and I'm glad things are going well for you. And, uh, yeah, good luck with all your kids that you're working with. And, and uh, thanks for the stories, R. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'll see you around, man. Yep, thanks, Steve. I appreciate it. This was really cool. Thanks, thanks, Randy. See ya. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Fly Racing Steve Mathis Show. Don't forget to check out some of our past shows, including motocross legends such as The Bad Boy, Rick Johnson. I looked down and my hand was junk. I mean, yeah. I was sitting over to the side. The tendons were jerking in weird places. And my biggest disappointment with Danny Storbeck is that he never said sorry. Danny and I were friends, and we've never talked since. Brian Lunas. Before the 500 event, Dave and I fly to Germany, go down to Stuttgart. There's this little shop out the back of the mall factory. We get our cylinders, take them back, and, you know, off we go. And, you know, we ran Nicosil Cylinders as a factory part for a handful of years before anybody ever saw it in production. Dave Arnold. And, and McGill was all, you know how he did the big pancake thing? Right, and right. and he's got the thing, he's completely laying on the gas tank trying to miss his tree. I mean, he would have gone even harder, jumped farther if that tree hadn't have been, you know, yeah. if, if it hadn't have been there. The Hurricane, Bob Hanna. 
I love the guy. I don't dislike. I think yeah. he's the greatest competitor this sport ever had. Absolutely, 100% in my mind. I firmly believe that statement I said about these modern-day guys in Switzerland or Holland or Belgium on 45 minutes on the same bike. You're not beating Roger. Are you crazy? Right. They're not doing it. If they think they're so much better nowadays than they were in those days, they're fools. They're different bikes, different times. The Beast from the East, Damon Bradshaw. It got to the point where I didn't want to leave home, and once I got to the race, I wasn't into it. If I wasn't going to give 100%, I'm not going to take their money. The working class hero, Doug Henry. It was definitely an emotional moment for me, just thinking to myself, that's it, you know, and it's, it's amazing the stuff that goes through your head in a short amount of time of the things that, you know, that I was going to miss. The daughter, Ron Machine. Until you really open your ears and you want to listen to what they're saying, it's like beating a dead horse, I mean, you know, and I know from personal experience, did anybody ever sit me down? Of course they did. Everybody did. Pro Circuits, Mitch Payton. There's two ways to make the money. One is you can sign for money, or two, you can earn the money. I'm a high believer in earning the money. I think they ride better when they earn the money. Seven-time Jeremy McGrath. I was so mad, like so disappointed and so frustrated that I pulled pick and I left. Every point counts. I could kick myself to this day for not just riding around in tents. It's been no problem. My, my ego got in the way, you know? The O Show, Johnny Omar. Stuff that you could, you'd sit there if you didn't even want to ride it, you just wanted to just look at it all day. I mean, I got a chance to test all that. I like that era I was in, I really do. Search Pulp MX in the iTunes Store to enjoy these and over 800 great motocross podcasts. As the days and the months and the years go 